human beings, we have lots of, you know, multiplicities. We are not very simple. We are very compound. But God is absolutely simple. Even the distinction between existence, wujud, mahiya, which is quiddity, would not apply to God. And that is only God. That has no even this combination of wujud and mahiyat, which is not a real combination. It's not a real combination because only one of them is the reality and the other one is the side effect of it. Anyway, inshallah in more advanced books you can know more about this. The third is unity of God with respect to actions. Everything that happens in this world is an action of God. Either directly or indirectly. Ultimately, everything goes back to God. There is no one in existence that can have any impact except God. Any effect except God. If we do something, it's ultimately going back to God. If any animal does something, if any um, living being does something, or anything that happens in the nature, they all finally go back to God. But in a hierarchical way. It means that we have a role, but ultimately goes back to God. Like for example, Quran talks out about death. In one place, the Quran says that the angels receive the soul of a person who dies. Because you know that death is just departure of the soul from body. Okay? So when the angels receive our soul, what happens? When the angels receive our soul, what happens? We die, or it's more accurate to say, our body dies. <laughs> we don't die. But the, when, when the angels receive our soul, our body dies. Yeah? Like, for example, when you, you know, peel by mistake or whatever your skin, what dies? The skin, not you. So, departure of the soul from body is like peeling the body <laughs> from the soul, so the body dies. The soul remains alive. So, this act of removing body from soul is attributed to the angels. Alladhi tawaffathu rusuluna. Rusul means apostles, and here means angels. So there are angels who are responsible for receiving our souls. But also the Quran says that there is an archangel who is responsible for death. And that is Israel who is responsible as an archangel. Uh, so the Quran says that قُلْ يَتَوَفَّاكُمْ مَلَكُ الْمَوْتِ بِكُمْ Tell them that the angel of death who is commissioned, has been given this responsibility, would receive your soul. 
Is there any contradiction between the two? No. Even if we add to this that Allah receives our soul, <laughs> there is no contradiction. Allahu yatawaffal anfusahina mauta. God receives the soul when we die. So there are three levels of agency. At one level, the basic level, we say angels. In a higher level, we say malakul mawt. Because malakul mawt has angels who work for him. Okay, it's not that for every person, malakul mawt himself goes. For some people, malakul mawt sends other angels. Okay? If someone is important, maybe because he's very good or maybe he's very bad, <laughs> you know, then malakul mawt goes. Otherwise, there are agents for Malakul Mot. But Malakul Mot also works under God. Allahu yatawaffal anfusah khina mawta. So there is a hierarchy. So we can attribute the same action of receiving soul to the angels, to Malakul Mot, and to God. In our daily life, we have many examples like this. For example, when you open the door, imagine you want to go back home, inshallah, maybe in one hour or more, I don't know, depending where is your home. So you go home and you put the key in the hole and you turn it and open the door. So. You can say the key unlocked the door and opened the door. You can see my hand. You can see I open. But you can also see God. Because every action is finally going back to God. When we say everything is an action of God, not in the sense that God, without involving us, opens the door. That is also possible. For some people, sometimes they never see any closed door. God opens for them the doors. Inshallah, God opens the doors of opportunities for us. But at least it's not for everyone. So God asks you to do a little effort that you also turn something so that you open it. But then God is blessing you. God is helping you. God is giving you permission Isa was giving, for example, healing. Yeah? For example, Allah says, Tubrahul akmaha wal abrasa bi'izni. Tuhyal mawta, for example, bi'izni. Wa is takhluku minatina kahayata tayri fatanfuku fiha fayakunu tayran bi'izni. So Isa truly was involved. You cannot say Isa had no role. No, he had a role, but bi'izni, with Allah's leave and blessing. So it was an act of Isa alayhi salam, but at the same time was an act of God, because hierarchy. A king says, for example, to people, last year we made for you few hospitals. Okay, thank you. But <laughs> did the king himself build these hospitals? No, it doesn't mean that. It means that we as a government... But then he says, Minister of Health. 
Ministry of Health has, you know, I don't know, a section which is responsible for building hospitals. But then they commission, you know, some companies. Then they have labor. So there's a hierarchy, but still it's correct to say that the king has built this, or the government, or the ministry, or for example, that company. So there's a hierarchy. So Tawhida Af'ali means at the end, everything goes back to God because everything comes from God. Yeah? No existence, no perfection, no power, nothing is there unless it comes from God. So everything is an action of God. But there is a very delicate issue here. And I'm sure you all have thought about this as soon as I say everything is an action of God. What about bad actions? Like if a person commits a sin, what about that? The answer is there are two sides in every action. One is the existential side, one is the moral side. The existential side is still is from God even in bad actions. But the moral side is the responsibility of every agent. Okay? The moral side is the responsibility of every person. God would not force you to use your power for doing bad things or good things. He gives you the power. He gives you the freedom. It's up to you to use it in good way or bad way. Of course, you will be responsible. You will be held accountable. But it's up to you. So if you use it for good thing, praise God. If you do it for bad thing, blame yourself. <laughs> because if you do it for a good thing, it's a blessing of Allah. Yes, we give you credit for what? For not using the power that God has given you in a bad way. This is the only credit you can get. Otherwise, you didn't create anything. You didn't bring anything from your pocket. You used anything that you have in a good way, but with the blessing of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But if you use it in a bad way, you should only blame yourself. Not, you, you cannot blame God. You cannot blame the world. You cannot blame the creation. You cannot blame the time. You said it was a bad time. I, you know, some people try to blame time. You know, in Farsi, we say, Dahr, Ruzegar. It's a very bad time, very bad age. No. Blame yourself. Even you cannot blame Satan. La talumuni. Walumu anfusakum. Don't blame me. I have many things to be for which I will be blamed, but not for your mistakes. I will be blamed for my role in deceiving you, for my role in misguiding, but for your action, you will be blamed, not me. Because you could have disobeyed me. I didn't have any force to take you to this direction or that direction. I didn't have any control over you. It was not that your remote control was in the hand of shaitan and shaitan sent you everywhere. Your remote control is in your own hand. Shaitan sends bad signals but change the channel. <laughs> Why you go to that bad channel? Take the good channel. So, remote control is in your hand. Shaitan has channels which work 24 hours. Not one, many. In many languages. But there are also many good channels. So this is up to you. La talumuni. Walumu anfusakum. Don't blame me. Blame yourself. Anyway, let shaitan and those who follow him fight till end of the world. Who should be blamed? <laughs> what is important? That whatever we do, 
is based on what we have received from God, but the moral responsibility lies with you. You cannot blame anyone. People may be blamed for their action, which can be misguiding you, misteaching you, but that's their action. Your response is your action. So, even bad things that we do, in a sense, they are attributed to God, but not in their moral side, in their existential side. And this is why our ulama have come up with a very good distinction between two types of will of God. Two types of will of God. Al-irada at-takwiniyah, which is generative will of God. Al-irada at-tashri'iyah, legislative will of God. For everything that happens, there is generative will of God. Everything. Because everything is created by God. But only for those things that God loves, there is legislative will of God. God only wants good things. God only desires from us to do good things. So he says, So his legislative will is that you observe justice and on top of justice, kindness. Ihsan. Which is more than justice and to give to the kinship. And God asks you not to do bad things, not to do ugly actions. So God has legislative will. Certain things for God are unacceptable. He says, I don't want this. For certain things, he says, this, these are acceptable. But when it comes to generative will, everything that happens, whether they are morally good or bad, they can only happen if God permits. So when someone disobeys God, may Allah keep us away from sin. But if someone disobeys God, this means that God has permitted this act, but he is not pleased with this. God has permitted, but he's not pleased with. Like for example, you give your child money and you give him clear advice that with this money go and buy something useful. Go and buy milk, go and buy some fruits. Don't buy cigarettes. You give him money, you give him guidance. You watch him, but you don't stop him. You want to see what he does. If he go and buys good things, then these, would be, these good things would be pleasing to you. If he buys bad things, it would be displeasing to you. But in both cases, you have permitted this to happen for a greater good, and that is freedom. And that is responsibility, because he has to develop a deep sense of responsibility. The level of perfection that human beings can reach is so high that can only be achieved by a responsible being. Even angels cannot achieve that high level of perfection which is available to us because they don't go through the challenges that we go through. We have lots of mixed desires. We have lots of op options. 
And if we manage to choose the good ones, then we would be put in a better situation. So this was the third. And the fourth is unity of God with respect to worship. We should only worship God. Worship means unconditional obedience. Worship doesn't mean what you do with your body to express the worship. That's expression of worship. As a worship, you may pray. As a worship, you may go to a temple, to a mosque, to a church, to a synagogue. You may go for pilgrimage. These are expressions of worship. But what is the true sense of worship? Unconditional obedience. That's the true sense of worship. To whom we need to be fully obedient? To God. Because he has created us. And everything that we have comes from God. And also he is the only one who has no interest in us except our own interest. God doesn't have any interest you know, in our acts of worship. He doesn't need anything. Anytime you want to obey someone in something, try to choose someone who has no conflicting interest. Because he has conflict, then he would ask you to do something that may suit him or her. If there's no conflict in interest, then it's okay. God is the one who has no conflict of interest with anyone. Actually, his interest is the interest of everyone. Because he is the provider of good for everyone. So this is unity of God with respect to worship. I stop here before Araf stops me. Sorry, I just made a joke. <laughs> okay. We have uh, two floating mics. Uh, Brother Muntazir will be going around with the mic on the gen side. And Sister Zain, if you, I'll, I'll give you the mic, inshallah. And uh, no, you didn't stop me. I don't have any contradictive point with you, inshallah. Thank you very much. Salawat ala Muhammad wa First of all, thank you very much, Sheikh, for your time and for your yeah, teaching. I'd like to explore a little bit about um, your analogy uh, where you talked about God giving uh, permission for actions to take place that we may choose to, make, to take. Yes. And use, an ex use the example of a parent watching a child take responsibility for their own actions. Yeah. But in, even in our understanding of that analogy, there are some actions which are so heinous that should a parent even watch but not act to stop when they could prevent an action occurring. Let's take a, an extreme example. Let's take murder. If a child is about to murder somebody, yeah. then the, parent the parent's inaction is culpable. Yeah. 
how do we square that with Allah's ability to prevent us from committing sin, yet he chooses not to, yet he then blames us for that yes. action? Actually, God has stopped children from doing such actions by telling that they are not morally responsible. <laughs> so no child does such terrible action because they are not responsible. So when you are mature, then yes, you are responsible. No one without reaching the age of Rosht and dis making distinction is responsible. So this means that God has saved all people who have not reached that level from doing terrible moral mistakes. So my, my question is, in, in that example, we, we are the children, God is the parent, right? So, uh, but yes, but you know, if you have a child who is 40 years old, <laughs> then he's responsible, you leave him. So anyone who is not mature is not Baalik, you don't let him to go alone and you try to watch him and stop him. Anyone who is more than age of maturity, then you don't need to go with him and watch him and if he does something to stop him. Even if you want to stop him, he may shout at you, no, don't stop me, I am no man. So anyway, it's a matter of responsibility. When people become able to understand and discern between what is good, what is bad, then God is so patient that let them do this even if they want to disobey God. Even if they want to fight God, God would not stop them. God never forces his will upon us. You can invite God to your life, but God never forces himself to your life. He comes always as a guest, not as an invader. Yes. Alaykum as salam wa Can you, uh, or, or maybe out of, uh, you can read. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum. Um, I'm just wondering if we're meant to be unconditionally obedient to God and He doesn't speak to us, then what are we meant to be obedient to if He doesn't tell us the rules? Um, and if the belief in God has to become before the belief in the prophets and the imams. Does that make sense? I, I, I have, I think, problem with my ear. I, I cannot un understand exactly what you said. If, can you speak slowly or? Okay. Uh, or um, if someone understood the question, can repeat the question. Did you understand the question? Yes. Okay. Okay. So, so why you don't get to Nubawa? <laughs> Actually, when we say Tawheed has conditions, it means that you, those conditions have to be fulfilled so that you can have Tawheed. You have to have Nubawa, you have to have Imam, you have to have faith in Ma'at so that Tawheed can be 
fulfilled? Good question, yeah. And good answer. <laughs> okay. Okay. Who is the next? Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. At the beginning of your lecture, you uh, mentioned that um, the three uh, requirements for a Muslim are Tawheed, Nabuat, and um, Qiyamah. Um, and if we then say that 90% of the Muslim population uh, fall into that category right now, later on, if you. Why 90%? Well, if, if we say, you know, 90% are from the Ahl Sunnah. Ah. Yeah. Uh, but later on, uh, when referring to the, uh, I think it's a silsila dhahab. Yes. Um, if the eighth Imam says that the condition for Tawheed is um, the acceptance of his divine appointment, does that then mean that the uh, 90%, uh, the Tawheed of the 90% who don't accept the uh, uh, d divine appointment of the Imams is invalid? A very good question. That was a good question and good answer. This is a very good question and inshallah very good answer. <laughs> okay. Uh, this is actually a question which relates to understanding the concept of takfir. You know, some people as soon as another Muslim from another sect disagrees with them in some doctrines or some principles, they say, you are kafir. But this is not right approach. We say, whoever believes in God, whoever believes in the resurrection, whoever believes in Prophet Muhammad <laughs> is to be recognized as a Muslim. And there is no need for a Muslim to be recognized as a Muslim to believe in Imamah. So to be a Muslim, you don't need to be Shia. Okay? Why? Because Imamah is not a doctrine that if you deny shows that you don't believe in the Prophet. Because there are many people in the world that they really don't find the connection between Prophet Muhammad sallallahu teachings and Imamah. It has not reached to them or it, they have not discovered it or somehow they are sincere Muslims but this issue has not been clarified for them. If someone doesn't believe in the Quran, that's a problem. Because no one can say, I didn't know that Prophet Muhammad said that Quran is my book. If someone doesn't believe in Salat, denies Salat. If someone doesn't say Salat, he's a Muslim. But if someone denies Salat, is a problem. If someone denies Mecca as a place for pilgrimage, a problem. Why? Because this is what we call Zaruri. It's something which is self-evident. If you ask any person, even non-Muslims, 
They know that it's a requirement of Islam to believe in the Quran, to believe in, I don't know, for example, pilgrimage to Mecca. But is Imama self-evident? No. Imama is documented. You can prove it, but it's not self-evident. There can be sincere, and there are many sincere Muslims. For them, Imama is still something to discover. It's not that they know and they deny. Okay? So to believe in the Imama is a requirement of being a Shia, but not a requirement for being a Muslim. And this is actually the difference between being a part or a condition. A part is something without which Islam is not complete. Condition is something without which Islam doesn't function or doesn't become perfect. And this is you know, the difference between the two. So for example, we have a body which has all the organs but is not moving. Why? Is any part missing? No. What is missing is soul. So Imama, sometimes, but people shouldn't misunderstand me. I say Imama is not part of Islam, is the soul of Islam. Al-Wilaya is not part like Salat or that. No, it's not a part in that sense. Wilaya is the soul, is the orientation. So without wilaya, you can be a Muslim, but then you don't know what to do or you know how to act and where to get your guidance. Of course, there can be many, many good Muslims, but if these very, very good Muslims, they had someone like Imam Hussein as their role model or someone like Lady Fatima as their infallible role model, they would have become much better. And we Shia, with having these role models, if we don't follow them, then we might be in a lower situation. So there might be many Sunni brothers and sisters who are much better than us. But those Sunni brothers and sisters who are much better than us, if they had followed Imams, they could still be better. This is what we say with full respect for all sincere believers. We actually respect even those who don't believe. Assalamu uh, You had mentioned that the polytheists before Islam, they had an understanding of God. <coughs> had an understanding of God. However, for them, the idols took them closer to God. How do we then distinguish this from Tawassul, from our belief in Tawassul? Very good question. They had a misconception that worshipping idols would take them closer to God. The problem here is more than one. One problem is that worshipping someone means that you have full obedience to that thing. So if you have full obedience to something, then it would not take you further. If you have conditional obedience, 
in order to move towards someone who deserves full obedience, that's fine. You know, for example, we follow Rasulullah, we obey Rasulullah, but our obedience to Rasulullah is because of our obedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But if you have full obedience to someone and worship someone, then it would not take you further, he would keep you there. When you do worship of idols, they don't take you towards God. They present you there. This is one problem. The other problem is that these idols have no authority. God told you that by worshiping them or you know showing respect to them, you come closer to me? Who said to you this? There is no sultan for this. There is no argument for this. You know, I cannot, you know, worship a shoe and say, you know, this takes me closer to God. Who told you this? Your uncle said this. You make, you know, a statue from clay and then she takes me closer to God. So someone says, no, this takes you further away from God. There has to be a reason. If someone is a servant of God who has been dedicating his life to God and has achieved some level of nearness to God, then not by worshiping him, but by showing respect to him and either asking him to pray to God or asking God to give you because of him, then you have a chance. But you choose arbitrarily something, you look around and you know, find you know, that TV and say, you know, I want to worship that to get, to get me closer to God. It's uh, useless. You know. It's actually harmful. This shows that you don't understand what is God and what your relation with God would require. So there are many problems in the concept of idol worshipping. They worship, this is a problem. Independent from God, this is a problem. Something which has no authority, no credit, no recognition from God, this is another problem. We never worship the Prophet or Ahlul Bayt. We never give them any independence. Actually, the only reason, the only reason we call upon the Prophet and Ahlul Bayt is because these are the people who have dedicated their entire life to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So they are our role models. They help us to develop a deep sense of servitude to God. Not that they make us busy with themselves so that we forget God. They, they act like mirrors in which light of God is reflected to us. Not like some objects that make us busy so that we don't see the light. So there's a whole you know, issue of difference between tawassul and worshipping idols yes I don't know who is supposed to talk here following on from what you just said uh, we talked about the unity of God and we said one of the um, the levels of Tawheed is the attributes of God. Now, if you talk to, for instance, Hindus, yes, they will tell you they will say that they believe in the unity of God, that there is one God. Yes, 
the idols are just the attributes of in, in, in the, the idols are a manifestation of the attri different attributes of God and what they say is that when we believe in those idols we're actually going back to the unity of God but we're just using the individual idol as, as the attribute so if it's if it's the idol of war or is the idol of wealth or whatever it may be so how does that come in then does is that polytheism or is that a unity of one God, but they have taken the attributes in a different way. Uh, of course, this is something that uh, maybe even different Hindu scholars have different opinions, but the question is, who decides what is a manifestation of God? For example, if you say it's a manifestation of God's power, who decides this? It cannot be arbitrary. You cannot say, for example, I take this object because it is red as a manifestation of power. I take that one which is yellow as a manifestation of his life. Or I take this statue as... There must be a reason for that. So, this is one problem. But the second thi thing is, is it just manifestation or you are giving it some kind of deity also? Some kind of lordship? If it's a manifestation, we say, okay, there is arbitrary, but okay, it's manifestation. Yes, everything is manifestation of God. But you are giving it a level of sacredness. Where does that sacredness come from? The second problem. The third is, how is this going to help you in your pursuit of perfection? You know, if I worship my, for example, I don't know, my dress. If I worship, I don't know, for example, my fridge. How is it going to help me? So there must be a logical explanation of the things that you choose to associate to God. Yes, you can say everything is a manifestation of God, but if you want to raise something to the level that you worship, to the level that you dedicate yourself to, there must be a reason. Either you must have received a clear guidance from God that says, you know, come to me through this object, or your agl must push you in that direction. Again, with all the respect with, for other people. The question finished? No, no. So if there are time, there is time or what? No. So we, we respect all the people who have questions and we couldn't, you know, uh, unfortunately address them. Please forgive me. Maybe if I was more eloquent, I could have received more questions. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make us grateful for all his blessings, those that we know and those that we don't know. And maybe those blessings of Allah that we don't know are actually much more than those we know. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to help us as individuals, as families, as community to move fast towards him, inshallah, towards perfection. We ask Allah to hasten reappearance of Imam Zaman Jalallah Ta'ala Farajahu Sharif and make our actions, our words, our decisions, our intentions pleasing to our Imam, inshallah. May Allah give shifa to all people who are ill, especially those who are spiritually ill. May Allah give shifa to all our illnesses. 
May Allah give rahmah to all mu'mineen, especially mu'mineen of the brothers and sisters who are here and those who have rights upon us. And may Allah, inshallah, keep us always under his constant and close care and attention and guidance. Wa akhiru da'wan and alhamdulillah rabbil alamin.